0: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. Today on the program, we'll hear about why many in Wyoming are celebrating the decision not to list the greater sage-grouse as an endangered species, and why some are not.
2: Both the sage-grouse final plans and the listing decision are on shaky scientific and legal ground.
1: We'll also explain why Wyoming continues to hold its annual sage-grouse hunt,
0: We will hear about the latest clean coal efforts, and when the boom goes bust, who's
3: going to be left on the hook? The costs to properly plug and reclaim these deep oil wells are going to be much, much more expensive.
1: Wyoming ranchers who depend on seasonal foreign workers say new regulations could cripple their industry.
0: We can hear those stories and much more coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News.
1: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. You might have heard a strange sound this last Tuesday morning a sigh of relief from ranchers, oil and gas workers, and miners all over the West at the announcement that the greater sage-grouse won't be listed as an endangered species. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, you probably also heard the slapping of foreheads from wildlife advocates who say the grouse needs full federal protections if it's going to survive.
3: The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has concluded that the greater sage-grouse does not need protection under the Endangered Species
4: Act.
1: That's U.S. Interior Secretary Sally Jewell breaking the news at a wildlife refuge in Colorado this week. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Director Dan Ash echoes that celebratory tone. He says the reason sage-grouse didn't need listing was because of a unique conservation plan developed in Wyoming eight years ago. It's now used by many states around the West, and Ash says his agency borrowed heavily from it to develop federal protection plans for grouse.
4: But I have to point out, singularly, the leadership that we saw from the state of Wyoming in designing the core area strategy back in 2008.
1: You might be wondering, core area what? The core area strategy is a plan designed in 2008 by then-Governor Dave Friedenthal. He saw the number of sage-grouse declining fast in the state, and that if the bird was listed, it would drastically hurt the state's economy by restricting energy development and grazing in its habitat. National Audubon Society Vice President Brian Rutledge joined Friedenthal's sage-grouse team in those early days.
4: And Dave Friedenthal, the grumpy uncle of all things sagebrush, that helped us get this rolling, should be here to hear about this as well.
1: Rutledge was just one of many diverse characters on Friedenthal's team.
5: Uh, you got the oil and gas guy sitting next to the hunter, sitting next to the wind person, sitting next to the fish and
1: wildlife. That's Bob Budd. He has served as the team's chair since the get-go. Bud says they brainstormed a plan for protecting the birds that had never been tried before, and at its heart was this nugget.
5: What we've done is we've got about 84% of the birds in Wyoming are in core areas, which affords them considerable protection.
1: That means no mining, no grazing, no oil wells without a permit.
5: That's on 15 million acres of our surface and it's uh, blind to ownership. It's not just federal lands or just state or just private. It's It's the habitat, which doesn't see those lines.
1: And that's why this plan is so different. Most conservation efforts focus on the animal, not where it lives but Wyoming's team used the latest biological sage-grouse research to set the rules on a landscape-wide scale.
5: There is so much science behind this. In the state of Wyoming alone, we have spent probably 3 to $5 million on the science, on just the science.
0: Both the sage-grouse final
2: plans and the listing decision on shaky scientific and legal ground.
1: Eric Mulvar is a wildlife biologist for Wild Earth Guardians. He says the Fed's decision not to list sage-grouse hinges on a narrow view of the data. For instance, that the number of grouse has been increasing over the last two years.
0: This is a species
4: that cycles upward and downward, but you have to watch the long-term trends, and you can't get too caught up in the short-term increases or the short-term decreases.
1: Mulvar says actually, since 2010, the number of birds has dropped by more than a quarter. And he says when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife developed the new federal protections for the bird, they didn't even listen to their own scientists about how much energy development and grazing should be allowed in the protected areas.
0: In the Wyoming plan, it was a political compromise. It was never based on science. And that political compromise then got imported into the federal planning
1: effort. Mulvar says groups like his might have a solid case for challenging the decision in court and still get the bird listed. But Wyoming Governor Matt Mead, for one, says the decision is in line with the Endangered Species Act.
0: There's nothing in that act that says the goal is to list species. The goal is to make sure we take care of our species, take care of our habitat, so that we don't have to list species.
1: Meanwhile, Meade recently announced an initiative to reform the Endangered Species Act to make it easier for states to design their own conservation plans. And the sage-grouse? Listed or not, they just keep dancing. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
0: Last weekend, Wyoming's annual sage-grouse hunt began. Many hunters were worried that this could be the last hunt in a while since the bird was facing the possibility of getting listed as an endangered species. When the chicken-sized bird started seeing declines in the 1990s, some states stopped sage-grouse hunting altogether. Wyoming continued its hunt after changing the start date and limiting the take.
1: That will continue even as the state addresses mandated conservation efforts. One of those who has studied the sage grouse for many years is Dr. Jeff Beck, no relation to our news director. But he's an associate professor of wildlife habitat restoration ecology at the University of Wyoming. He's also an avid sage grouse hunter. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck has more.
0: It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon in southern Wyoming as Jeff Beck, and his nine-year-old yellow Labrador retriever, appropriately named Sage, pull up to one of his favorite hunting spots. I
5: I went on my first sage-grouse hunt when I was 16 or 17, and I have probably gone at least 30 years or so in total since I began hunting sage-grouse.
0: It's a sunny day and the view is amazing. Miles of open space with some rolling hills and sagebrush covering the landscape, making it difficult to walk at times. For Beck, there is nothing like it. There's something
5: about sage-grouse hunting that is hard to describe. You're, you're in a you know a place that t- tends to be fairly windy, um, it smells like sagebrush, you're walking through sagebrush, you um, may walk all day and never see a bird, and then everything can change so quickly. Maybe that's why it's so exciting.
0: Back in Laramie, Beck's laboratory is actually studying the impacts of hunting sage grouse. Researcher John Dinkins is conducting some of the studies. He says those impacts are difficult to determine because if agencies like the Game and Fish think the numbers are down, they limit the amount of birds that can be hunted.
6: So it's really difficult to tease apart whether it's the hunter harvest itself that was causing the decline or if it's another factor or you're in a cycle or so on
0: but Dinkins says wildlife agencies are watching the numbers closely.
6: Range-wide, state management agencies have really put a lot of effort into reducing any potential for negative um, effects of hunter harvest.
0: Some states, like Nevada, drop sage-grouse hunting when the local population drops substantially. Wyoming Game and Fish Department Deputy Chief of Wildlife Scott Smith says they worked hard to preserve the hunt in this state. It's a traditional hunt. Uh, A lot of youngsters, um, some of their first upland bird hunting experiences are with uh, pursuing sage grouse on a beautiful September afternoon. Smith says the department pushed the start date of the hunt to allow hens to hide and have chicks. They also disallowed hunting in areas where sage grouse numbers were low, shortened the season, and then limited the numbers that hunters could take. Smith says their numbers show that this approach and other conservation efforts have worked. We feel there is a, a healthy population of sage-grouse and a very conservative hunting season uh, does not lead to population decline. Hunters also let the department know how sage-grouse are doing. Most population counts are done in the spring, but in the fall, hunters are asked to collect feathers of the birds they shoot. Researcher Dinkins says that tells them a lot.
6: They have a much better feel for how sage-grouse are reproducing across years with the data that they're getting from the hunters.
0: As a researcher of sage-grouse and a hunter, Beck admits that there are occasions when he questions whether he should hunt. It is a conflict. It is a conflict. And I have
5: friends, fellow researchers, that would never hunt sage-grouse because they personally feel that it's a large conflict of interest for them. For myself, I recognize the role that the hunters play in conservation and I also uh, I use the meat. I, it's something that I enjoy to eat as well. Oh, look at that. <coughs> I bet there's another one in here. See
0: that? How did the story end? Course, On this day, Jeff Beck did not decrease the sage-grouse population
5: we the going over the hill, right where we were. <laughs> but, to here, Steve.
0: For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck.
5: I, I hesitated on my shot.
1: When we come back, a story on how Wyoming is working with Chinese officials to develop clean coal. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. In a joint press conference with President Obama, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced a commitment to put a price on carbon emissions. The plan is a cap-and-trade program, which would effectively make China the world's biggest carbon market. It's a key part of joint efforts by the U.S. and China to find cleaner ways to burn and use coal. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson recently traveled to one of China's main coal-producing
3: provinces to see what the country is doing to clean up coal. After driving through the dense, concrete capital city of Taiyuan and then miles and miles of countryside, smokestacks emerged in the distance, peeking through the trees. We arrived at a brand new coal fired power plant owned by Chinese power company Shanxi International Group. A large crowd of executives, employees, and translators quickly swept us inside. We rushed through a large, bright lobby, complete with a badminton court and a goldfish pond. Speaking through a translator, our tour guide introduced us to the facility, which opened in 2012. It's equipped with the latest technology to reduce air pollution. And the emission of dust, sulfur dioxide, has reached the 2014 national emission standard. This power plant is a prime example of how China is now tackling pollution from burning coal. High-tech scrubbers remove pollutants, which make air thick with smog. And then there's the added benefit of reducing CO2 by simply using more efficient equipment. China is shutting down old, inefficient power plants and, according to the Institute for Energy Research, is building a new one every seven to ten days. Back on the bus, I caught up with David Wendt, head of the Jackson Hole Center for Global Affairs.
0: Wyoming and Shaanxi are the two largest coal-producing states in the two largest carbon-emitting countries.
3: His group has been organizing these sorts of trips for over a decade, and this year they brought me along. Their goal is to explore ways to collaborate with the Chinese on the challenging issue of lowering carbon emissions.
0: Uh, And particularly through joint investment in these technologies, I believe together we can get the job done.
3: Our itinerary in Shanxi was packed. Inspirational music welcomed us to the fifth annual Low Carbon Forum, a jam-packed conference focusing on cleaning up a high-carbon resource. And then there were meetings with local officials, as well as tours of a coal mine methane site and a facility that turns coal into marketable liquids. It was all choreographed and paid for by the local government. And although there was a lot of vague talk about going green, there were few specifics. But for a very clear picture of how urgent the emissions problem actually is, just step outside. In Taiyuan, and then in Beijing, smog hangs heavy, blocking skyscrapers from view. It irritates your lungs and eyes. I even felt like I could taste it.
2: My name is Ming Sun.
3: I met Sung near his home in Beijing, the night before he left to be part of President Xi's U.S. delegation. He's an engineer by training, and now an advocate for clean coal technology.
2: The mother nature uh, used to have a balance, and we need to bring it back into balance. Otherwise, our children, our grandchildren will suffer.
3: Both countries are working on it in part through a joint venture called the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center.
2: Coal is not sexy, but we would like to transition into clean coal technology.
3: Sung said the Chinese government is coming around to the idea slowly, mostly because coal is their main fuel source. But why not focus on wind and solar instead of putting resources into cleaning up
2: coal? Well, less doesn't mean zero. I don't see any time we get to zero yet.
3: In fact, while coal demand in the U.S. is down and China's coal consumption has weakened with its slowing economy, the two countries are not anywhere near zero. The U.S. gets around 40 percent of its electricity from coal, and in China, it's double that. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson.
0: In recent years, solar energy has gone from the fringe to mainstream. Solar costs have dropped dramatically, while solar installations have similarly increased. Solar still provides less than 1% of the nation's power, and in states like Wyoming, it's virtually non-existent. But many predict solar power will play a much larger role in the future. Among them is Philip Warburg, author of the recently published book, Harness the Sun, America's Quest for a Solar-Powered Future. He joined Wyoming Public Radio's energy reporter Stephanie Joyce to talk about what he learned on his tour of solar projects all across America.
7: So one of the things that you note throughout the book is that solar has really gone from being an energy source that was almost exclusively appealing to environmentally minded consumers to having really a more broad spectrum appeal. For example, you talk about how solar has become very popular with Uh, many libertarians who see it as a way to challenge utility monopolies. Can you explain how solar made that leap?
4: For the past century, really, we've thought about electricity as generated by central power plants that are remote from our homes and businesses. Often people really don't even know where their power is coming from or what the source of that power is in terms of the fuel type used. What's great about net metered solar is it's very clear where that power is coming from, and we actually can take charge of generating a substantial portion of our electricity needs.
7: You dedicate a fair bit of time in your book to something I hadn't given much thought to. I think there's a popular perception that solar is an environmentally consequence-free energy source, but you say that's not the case. Can you explain what are some of the environmental downsides to solar energy?
4: There is no such thing as totally clean energy. Solar does have its downsides. Among other things, solar takes up quite a lot of space. And I think one of the things that we need to do is to take maximal advantage of solar where it can be installed in built-up areas. But there are plenty of rooftops that don't accommodate solar because of the wrong orientation or because of shading. But there are other opportunities, such as industrial brownfields. Now, the the drawback there is that brownfield solar can be somewhat more expensive than building solar on open lands. Um, And what we're finding today is that a good number of solar developers are looking to farmland and, in some cases, natural open spaces to build their solar projects because it's less expensive to do so. So I think we have to take great pains to make sure that we minimize the impact on the landscape.
7: Obviously, space and land use are big issues, but they aren't the only ones that you mention. You talk about how some solar panel components are toxic, uh, that many solar panels, in fact, most solar panels these days are made in China, and that some of the factories that make them are powered by coal plants. If we're going to dramatically increase solar panel production and solar use in this country, Does the industry need to address those issues?
4: Well, I should say that the the majority of panels that are used are made from crystalline silicon, and those panels have very, very minuscule amounts of toxics. Um, The panels that are somewhat more problematic are called thin film uh, photovoltaics, um, and they do have some toxics that need to be handled with care. Part of what we have to do is develop a sophisticated recycling industry. And frankly, with um, the growth of the solar industry, uh, I think we will see that recycling industry develop. A lot of the materials that go into solar panels can be safely recycled. Most of the the weight of solar panels um, is glass. It's about 80%. And there are metals in the framing as well that can be easily recycled, so we need to plan ahead for that and scale up our recycling as the first generation of solar panels begins to uh, near the end of its productive life.
7: Right now, you know, a big topic in Wyoming is is cleaning up coal mines, cleaning up oil and gas wells. Wyoming requires bonding for for both of those. Is that something that's being discussed for for solar having solar bonds before Solar panels can be installed?
4: One company has experimented with that, and I think the problem there is that uh, it's obviously an added cost. So, unless the entire industry goes that route, any one company that offers that kind of safeguard is going to be penalized in the marketplace. Um, I think we need uniform standards that um, ensure that we will have proper and safe recycling and disposal of solar technology.
7: Solar still accounts for just a tiny fraction of our overall electricity use. And many critics have argued that in the long run it really can't replace baseload generators like coal and gas and nuclear because it's not always on. So what changes need to happen in order for solar to play a bigger role in our energy system?
4: There's no question that if we're going to move toward a renewable energy economy, we're going to have to become a lot more sophisticated, a lot more nuanced in the way that we produce our electricity and in the way that we use our electricity and in the way that we store our electricity. We are going to need to develop storage technologies so that we can, in a sense, even out the bumps in the production and create a perfect balance between consumption and production of electricity. Another thing is within our households and within our our businesses, there are ways that we use electricity on a constant basis um, where we could be doing so intermittently, again, to help um, create a perfect balance between production and consumption. We've seen fundamental changes in the way we do a lot of things in terms of, for example, telecommunications. When you look at the way we regarded telecommunications two decades ago, It looked fundamentally different than the way it looks today. And I think the same thing will happen with electricity production and use. The way it looks in 2030 or 2040 will be very different than the way it looks and functions today.
7: Politics have played a really big role in the recent success of solar. Um, A 30 percent federal tax credit that was introduced by Bush and extended by President Obama has been critical Um, That tax credit is about to expire in 2016. Is solar ready to stand on its own two legs without that incentive and other incentives?
4: I think we have lived for the past century providing very substantial and and sustained subsidies to the traditional fossil fuel industries and to the nuclear industry. And continuity is very important in the development of of any technology. Will solar survive the demise of the investment tax credit? At some level, solar will continue to be invested in. It will severely slow down the industry, which would be, I think, a a grave mistake at this very early stage in in its development.
7: I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. When we come back, we'll hear
1: reaction to bringing refugees to Wyoming and look into the problems Wyoming may face as it tries to plug abandoned wells. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back.
1: And I'm Melody Edwards. President Obama has announced the U.S. will accept at least 10,000 Syrian refugees over the next year. Right now, it's unclear where those refugees will go when they arrive in the U.S., but we do know one place they won't be heading, Wyoming. It's still the only state without a resettlement program. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard explains.
8: Now, Wyoming does have residents who are former refugees. People like Bertine Bahij, who came from the Congo. Today he lives in Gillette and he's a high school math teacher.
5: Okay, I'll come to you.
2: Coming, I'm coming.
8: After class, Bahij coaches cross-country, tutors a homebound student, and then finally returns to his family.
6: Okay.
8: Come here, come here. Say, hi. <laughs> gonna say hi. His wife was born in Wyoming, and now they have two kids. Bahij says these 12-hour days are an effort to give back to the state.
5: They give me an opportunity to raise a family. And I work every day as hard as I can. a, an act of thankfulness, you know, and that can be any other refugee.
8: Bahij has made a home for himself in Gillette, but he is still pretty unique in his community. His wife, Amanda, says she didn't know much about refugees growing up. I mean, I grew up here in Gillette, and so even you know, less diverse when I was growing up than it is now. I mean, I didn't have any exposure to any of that before meeting him. That lack of diversity and exposure spurred Bahij to action. Now he's an advocate for starting a refugee resettlement program in Wyoming. Resettlement programs help screen and sponsor refugees, and then provide a stipend, orientation, and English classes to new arrivals. In 2013, Wyoming Governor Matt Mead looked at starting a refugee resettlement program. That did not go over well with everyone, especially with conservative legislators. Republican state legislator Scott Clem, also from Gillette, still doesn't like the idea.
5: We're the least populated state in the union. Just a small change in the
6: demographics here could upset the the Wyoming economy, the Wyoming culture.
8: Clem, along with other conservative lawmakers and citizen groups, say they don't like the idea of spending money to bring foreigners to the state's small communities. Wyoming's unemployment rate is lower than the national average, at around 4 percent. But with the recent downturn in the energy industry, Clem says people are still worried about jobs and government spending.
6: As it is with our decreasing revenues, we have to be careful of what we can do. We have to take care of Wyoming's own first.
8: While opposition stalled the governor's earlier efforts, he's looking into resettlement again this year. He's tapped the Wyoming Humanities Council to put on public discussions where people can talk about refugees and the facts concerning a resettlement program. Shannon Smith, the council's executive director, says one of the main goals of the campaign is to explain what a refugee is and what sets
3: them apart from asylum seekers or immigrants. There are major differences between all these kinds of people moving around the planet, and we need to help our state understand that and help us decide whether we're going to be the single state without any kind of plan to accept people. When Bahij, the
8: math teacher from Gillette, first came to the U.S., he landed in Maryland. He didn't speak English and took a job as a fast food worker. Then he got a scholarship to the University of Wyoming. He points out Wyoming can't stop refugees from moving to the state once they're residents.
5: Refugees will make it to Wyoming. Either a you know, first-arriver or 2nd arrival. somebody who, like me, was resettled somewhere else and made their way to Wyoming. That will happen.
8: The Wyoming Humanities Council's first discussion panels about refugees and what a resettlement program could look like in Wyoming will start later this fall. After that, it will be up to the governor and legislators to decide what to do next. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: When energy booms Mm -hmm. bust, the public is often left responsible for the cleanup. That's because while most states and the federal government make companies put up at least some money in advance to pay for any mess they leave behind, it's often not enough. In Wyoming, the bust of the coal bed methane industry has left the state responsible for plugging thousands of wells at a cost of tens of millions of dollars. Now, with both oil and natural gas prices in a slump, Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports on whether history is bound to repeat itself.
7: Driving around the Powder River Basin with Jeff Gillum and Jeff Campbell is like playing an extended game of Where's Waldo? All right, can you
2: see the well yet?
7: Campbell is pointing towards a yard full of heavy equipment on the outskirts of Gillette. No, I definitely cannot see the Oh yeah, I can see the well. Right there. <laughs> yeah. We're on a tour of orphaned coal bed methane wells. Orphaned, meaning wells where the company responsible up and walked away. There are almost 4,000 of them in the state. Gilliam and Campbell, who work for the Wyoming Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, are in charge of making sure they get cleaned up and plugged. But first, they have to find them, which Gilliam says is surprisingly difficult.
0: Finding Waldo is easier.
7: That's because Gillette, like many other U.S. cities from Los Angeles to Denver, grew up around the wells. As we make our way around town, there are wells in people's front yards, the end of the driving range at the golf course, in a storage company's parking lot, we pull into a site where workers are beginning the plugging process.
0: Okay, this is, is a bentonite trailer, okay?
7: Bentonite is a kind of super absorbent clay that gets poured down the well to seal off the gas-producing formations. Listen
0: for the bentonite to hit the water at the bottom of lift dump more.
7: Once the bottom of the well is filled with bentonite, a cement crew comes in, then a pipe cutting crew. It takes 20 guys and many hours from start to finish. Campbell says on a good day, the crews can plug five or six wells. A lot more
6: work than a lot of people realize.
7: It also takes a lot of money. Coalbed methane wells in Wyoming are relatively shallow, so they generally cost under $10,000 a piece to plug. But even so, the state expects it could cost up to $30 million over the next decade to clean up all those orphaned wells. That's not a small expense. But Joe Morrison, an organizer with the Powder River Basin Resource Council, says there's potentially a bigger one on the horizon. The thousands of oil wells that have been drilled recently.
3: You know, they're that much deeper. The pad size are, are, are much bigger. So the costs to properly plug and reclaim these deep oil wells are going to be much, much more expensive.
7: Tens of thousands of dollars a well. And given the falling price of oil and shaky financials in the industry... Morrison doesn't think that's getting enough attention, in Wyoming or elsewhere in the country.
3: I'm hoping that Wyoming, because we do have so much experience, that we we can lead on this issue.
7: Mark Watson is Wyoming's oil and gas supervisor. He recently proposed new rules aimed at protecting the state from future cleanup costs. But they may not be enough. Right now, companies can get a so-called blanket bond that covers all their wells on private lands for $75,000. The new rules double that to $150,000.
0: As far as where we came up with the number, you know, there's really not a lot of science to it because some companies it would be more than enough and some companies it wouldn't be enough to plug all their
4: wells.
7: The new rules would also give regulators more oversight when wells are sold from one company to another. During the coal bed methane boom, large companies sold their wells, and the responsibility for plugging them, to smaller companies that then went under when prices crashed.
0: One of the things we probably need to do a better job at is, is identifying companies that, that aren't solvent and identifying them sooner than the, we did when the coal bed play ended.
7: But that's not an easy task. In the recent oil price crash, even some relatively big companies have gone bankrupt, and analysts see the potential for more carnage on the horizon. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. The National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, turns 50 years old this fall. The organization
1: teaches outdoor safety and wilderness medicine and also has programs for leadership, networking, and general adventure in the outdoors. Knowles was founded in Wyoming and is still headquartered in Lander, where it serves tens of thousands of students each year. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard caught up with John Gans, the executive director at Knowles, to hear his take on the school's 50 year legacy.
8: Now, for those who maybe aren't so familiar with the organization, can you give us a little refresher on the school's history?
6: Sure. In um, March 4th of 1965, Jack Nicholas, later Judge Jack Nicholas, and Paul Petzold signed the paperwork to incorporate Knowles and Thyra Thompson signed the paperwork and the school was off and, and running. And that first summer. We had students going into the Wind Rivers. Paul was on all the courses. Paul was a legendary mountaineer and educator. And the purpose of the school was to teach outdoor skills, to teach leadership in an outdoor setting, and also to teach a conservation ethic. All of those first courses for those first few years were conducted out of Wyoming and the school spread from there in um, the early 70s it was on national tv primetime tv when there were only three stations and primetime tv meant something and the school took off at that point and since the school has grown um, continued to grow to its present time we now have 280,000 alumni of the school all around the world we um have a total of, this last year, educated a total of 23,700 students on courses around the world, and in many ways, even though Paul was a great visionary, he didn't envision what the school would become today.
8: This is an organization, as, as you mentioned, based in Wyoming, and it does have that incredible international reach. Can you tell us a little bit about all of the different places in the world that this program reaches?
6: Well, Caroline, I probably couldn't tell you about all of them, but I, or to be a very long interview. But I can tell you about a few of them. A couple of years ago, we operated on every single continent. Um, this last year, we didn't operate in Antarctica, but we sometimes do, sometimes don't. In our other programs, we really try and number one. Um, offer programs that will appeal to our regular student base and those may be and often are primarily american students but in addition we want to make sure that the programming offers great value to the local country or community that we're in and so it could be everything from training um, the land managers for ngoro goro conservation area in northern tanzania to training mountain guides on Mount Kenya, or to training um, land managers and researchers, wilderness researchers down in the far tips of Southern Patagonia and Southern Chile.
8: One of the goals the organization has listed is for diversity and inclusion. What exactly do you mean by that?
6: Well, one thing we definitely see domestically, the profile of America is changing, as we all know, and the profile of the potential users and caretakers of our, our public lands are also changing. And so we want to reach the students of, and the public of tomorrow, and not just the public and the students of yesterday. The trends in America are toward a more urbanized society, and also to a greater proportion of Hispanic population and also African-American population and overall minority populations. And so that's been a big emphasis for the school. And this last year, 21% is an example of our students identified themselves as um, students of color or ethnically or racially diverse. Um, that's a big change over just 15 years ago.
8: I'm here with John Gans, executive director of the National Outdoor Leadership School And um, it seems like we're celebrating a pretty big milestone. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the 50th anniversary celebrations we're going to have?
6: Yes, Caroline. Um, This year, in addition to running, of course, our regular programs and taking care of business, we've been holding anniversary events around the country. We've held about 20 of them in gatherings in various cities and locations at some of the school locations also. This will be capped off this fall on the first weekend in October with events on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night here in Lander. So it'll be a great gathering of past instructors, current staff, past trustees, graduates, friends of the school, donors, and the whole Knowles community coming together.
8: John, looking back at this 50th anniversary, what do you think the school's legacy has been?
6: Well, I think um, There are a number of legacies for the school. And most importantly, we have taught 280,000 graduates that are leaders in their communities. Not all of them work in the outdoors by any means. Most of them do not. But those 280,000 leaders are folks that really understand how to work with other people. They have great expedition behavior and they're raving fans for our public lands so you see our graduates and everywhere from um, governor's offices to senate to public land managers to researchers to universities to um, hedge fund managers in new york and they're all doing great work and truly the legacy for any school and certainly the legacy for Knowles, is the legacy of our graduates
8: that was john gans the executive director at the national outdoor leadership school The school is celebrating its 50th anniversary.
1: That was Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard speaking with John Gans, Executive Director at Knowles.
0: When we come back, we'll visit an air park and attend a Peruvian soccer tournament. This is Open Spaces.
1: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck.
0: Sitting in an airplane is usually cramped and stressful, but sitting in the pilot's seat is a different story. For people who really love piloting a plane, there is one ultimate dream, living in an airpark. That's a planned community where your garage is a hangar and the runway is in your backyard. Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan visited an airpark just outside of the town of Alpine and has this report.
2: Many of us begin our day with this. The sound of the garage door opening. That usually doesn't mean anything special. Time for another morning commute or maybe some yard work if it's the weekend. But for Jack Schulte, the sound of the garage door opening means something very different. How does that sound make you feel?
0: It makes me ready to break the surly bonds of gravity.
2: Schulte's garage is as big as some houses. Big enough to park his two small planes. It would look bizarre in Casper or Cheyenne, but it's the norm at the Alpine Airpark community, where homes frequently cost more than a million dollars and come with a parking spot for your plane. Here in the airpark, flying is as casual and relaxed as a Sunday drive, and the safety check is just a good yell to get everybody out of the way.
0: Clear prop.
2: Schulte says he flies every day that weather allows, and I can see why. The rolling forests and craggy mountains below us are breathtaking. After a lazy cruise, Jack's wife, Marion, gets on the radio to give us the okay to come back down, checking air traffic and the automated weather. From her upstairs balcony, Marion is the flight controller for the whole town.
3: When a plane comes in, I can tell them what the winds are doing, but typically I'm just saying hello, hey, welcome home. People love it because where on earth do you fly into an airport and people say, hey, good to have you back, that kind of thing.
2: People come from all over the country and the world to live in Alpine Air Park. Usually over 60, retired and wealthy enough to afford a home near Jackson, They come together over a shared passion for all things flight.
0: I honestly had good friends, in my mind, until I discovered coming to Alpine Air Park.
2: Stan Dartis and his wife Sharon built their Alpine home after moving to Wyoming from Minneapolis.
5: These are truly good friends. We don't care what you've done in the past. We talk about what our common interests are now and our
0: values.
2: Wyoming's Alpine Air Park has only been around for the last decade or so. But air parks have been a fixture in the U.S. since World War II, when hundreds of thousands of men picked up the skills and, for some, a passion for piloting planes. Some of those men built air parks to keep it up after the war. There are about 600 air parks in the U.S. today.
5: I grew up flying airplanes. I guess I don't really remember learning to actually fly an airplane. I just started at a very young age. My dad saying, Here, hold this, keep the wings level, and go that direction.
2: Ben Sclair grew up on an airpark in Washington State. He also runs a website called livingwithyourplane.com, which has information and real estate listings for airparks across the country. He says the airpark that he grew up on and most others are a lot less ritzy than the one in Alpine.
9: Until I was six or seven, we
5: lived in a double-wide manufactured home. We had a hangar and a double-wide.
2: Sclair says business has been good for airpark realtors of late. But, he says, the survival of airpark communities like Alpine's faces an uphill battle. The rising cost of small planes, fuel, insurance, and pilot training has meant the number of private pilots in America has been dropping by about five to 10,000 every year since its peak in the 1980s. Back at Alpine Airpark, Jack Schulte says, yeah, there are a lot of gray hairs around. He's 66 and didn't start learning to fly until his 50s. But he says being able to wake up and fly every day keeps him young.
0: For me, it's a dream come true. And at this stage in my life to have something that gives me so much enjoyment and satisfaction is a a great
2: blessing. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan.
1: a few hundred migrant workers come to Wyoming on H-2A agriculture visas to tend cattle and sheep. The region's reliance on that program was on full display recently in Wyoming's Little Snake River Valley, where more than 100 ranch hands went head-to-head in an all-day soccer tournament. As Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, the event comes as the industry faces some big challenges.
9: Bright neon uniforms speckle a usually empty hayfield in the sleepy town of Savory. Two soccer games are in full swing, and almost all of the players are guest workers, like Dante Bruno.
2: We're here to play sports today. We are Peruvians. The majority of us
9: here are Peruvians. 38-year-old Bruno and his teammates wear pink pullovers that read Sheehan Ranch. He's been working at the ranch in bags for the past 15 years. Bruno says the work is hard but not complicated.
2: This is cows. Pretty much
9: cows. Bruno works here nine months a year and he earns the minimum monthly wage for the job in Wyoming
2: $875,
8: $875.
9: Plus room and board. Some guys on the field today make more, others less, depending on what state they live in, what work they do, and what the ranchers who hire them are willing to pay. Each of today's soccer teams is sponsored by a ranch. Savory rancher Jack Cobb started this tournament six years ago. It's supposed to be a fun day just to get them out and give them a chance to socialize with each other and just play soccer.
0: Somebody, let's go.
9: Cobb says the event serves to celebrate the mostly Peruvian migrant workers whose labor has been his industry's lifeblood over the past decade.
0: Back when I was a kid, we had, you know, American workers and then As the oil and gas field developed, they went to higher paying jobs and we went through the Mexican
6: labor and then they went looking for higher wages. And so the Peruvian through an H2A program has just saved the ranching community.
9: But now Cobb says the industry is in trouble again. This year, the Department of Labor proposed rules that would more than triple the $750 base wage he's required to pay his Peruvian sheep herders. That's gonna be
0: devastating. I mean, it will be for communities like this that are a small family ranching, they're going to die.
9: You know, I have no problem if we need to pay these guys more because they're worth every penny of it. James Kelly Sewell manages the Lazy C 2 Bar Ranch in Slater, Colorado. There's too many of these Peruvians working at base wage. At this day and age, even 650 750 a month is not enough money. So 1200 1500 2000 they're worth it. Sewell's H-2A workers earn $1,200 a month. Trade groups say the new regulations will cripple sheep ranches and grazing operations. But Sewell thinks employers can afford it. He stands on the sidelines as his ranch's team pulls out a win. This is just a big deal for these guys. They wait for a year to play. It's quite something to take home that trophy. But uh, it's a big day. Most of these guys will be so sore tomorrow they can hardly work. But none of us care. Reports of abuse, fraud, and poor conditions have long plagued the country's guest worker program. A 2010 survey of sheepherders in Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah found that more than 70% lacked toilets, and half had no electricity. But spirits are high here.
2: I like be cowboy, it's uh, it's more easy for me.
9: Nario Quispe Raimundo first came to this area on a three-year sheepherder visa. He traded up for summers doing cowboy work in Steamboat. He says he sends most of his paycheck home to his son in Lima. Beside him, a mob has gathered around a game ending in a heated shootout. Debbie and Carolyn Adams watch from the sidelines as their team, Adams Livestock, takes penalty kicks. They're
7: fun to come and support. We're their cheerleaders. Yes.
9: Debbie says they come and watch this tournament every year. Most all these guys are going
2: home. September, into September, yeah, they they're all going the falls. This is what the community does for the guys for their fun, because they love it.
9: But there's uncertainty as to how many of these guys will be back here next year. Higher wage requirements could mean fewer visa hires. But right now, says Nicaraguan guest worker Christian Gurdian, These men are busy just enjoying the day.
5: It's really great because we get to get together and have fun. We're all very content and happy.
9: For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schreck.
0: That's our program for this week. If you missed any part of the show or want to listen to an individual segment, simply go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org.
1: You can also sign up for our podcast on that website and on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. During this time of fundraising, we hope you'll consider making a contribution in support of our Wyoming news coverage and Open Spaces. Your support helps us bring you the stories you heard today.
0: Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.